Before we begin this episode, I want you to know that there is going to be some depictions of violence and abuse. So if that is a particular sensitivity for you, or you have children that are listening, it may be wise to skip this episode. This is Esther, and for five weeks it is my privilege to share her story with you. My name is Eddie Koffoltz. This is The New Activist, a podcast brought to you by International Justice Mission that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. For this series, those front lines are in Ghana, in Africa, on the shores of Lake Volta. Where we left our story in the last episode, our friend Esther was rescued. She was brought to a safe and secure facility, and she was beginning the process of living life after the island. So where we will pick up today is exactly where we left off. Esther is back. It is her first couple of hours of freedom. She has new clothes. She is clean. She has food. And then she does something remarkable. Once the once Esther and, and some of her friends that were rescued um, had a chance to to kind of get to their new permanent shelter, and um, become acclimated with those situations. This is Joshua, an IJM investigator in Ghana who witnessed firsthand Esther's return. They, they actually started providing a little bit of information and some of that information, the initial part was Esther going, hey, my sister is still there. My sister is still there. And, and so we're like, okay, tell us more, tell us more. And I remember uh, myself aftercare worker and an investigator sitting down with her for I think about two hours and just doing just a full debrief of all the people that she knew. And she was so amazing in the fact of the details that she was able to give us. Um, Physical description details, um, all the way down to know that person has a gap in their front teeth. They always wear this type of clothing. if you call them by this name, this is what they will respond to, to even the description of the homes that they were being kept in. And, and so, I mean, she was just like, oh, don't forget about this person. Don't forget about that person. So just, just, the, um, just the amount of detail that she was able to provide. And I think it was also like this freeing thing for her. Like it was this ability for her to help others the way that she's been helped, but we, we were very interested in being able to find another suspect that we knew that was outstanding, and she was very instrumental in, in us doing that as well. And so I don't, I don't know if there was this, this edge of, I know this person and they'll never be able to hurt anyone else if you get them, but definitely there was this sense of, I want other people to feel what I'm feeling right now. Right, and what came of that, that list of not only her sister, but the others that she provided? Yeah, so uh, a secondary operation came of that, and of all, 12 names that she provided, all 12 were rescued, including her sister. She kept mentioning um, a particular name. This is Perpetual, Esther's caseworker, and the person that knows her best. Um, So I remember when we got there, and they went the first day, came, brought (laughs) um, a number of children. I was at the lakeside to receive them. 
And I was just looking out for this particular girl that she mentioned because she's giving me descriptions of her. Were you there when they reunited? Yes. What was it, was, it like? It's such a joy, such a joy. The hugs all over, they were just so happy. She was happy that they, she was. And in the, when they, normally when we bring new children, um, we get the new ones to settle and then we invite the old ones to kind of come and receive them and welcome them. And so they didn't really know what was happening and they just, I think she was one of the last to enter the room. And then when she saw the girl, she turned and looked at me, turned and looked at the girl. She wasn't sure whether to come and hug me first or to go and hug the girl first. And then turned and looked at me again, then ran to the girl to go and hug. And then I said, oh, uh, Esther, uh, are you now okay? Say yes, I'm okay. And for me, uh, that was a defining moment. Um, I, I felt fulfilled at that point that um, this other girl uh, was also rescued and is now safe. What's yeah. their relationship like now? Very good. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Good friends. Very good, dear friends. We cannot miss the significance of what we just heard. Because if you'll remember back in episode three, Jeffrey, who was also enslaved on the lake for three years, was rescued and he made a list. And on that list was Esther's name. And because of it, Esther and eight others were rescued. And then Esther now comes back and no one would have blamed her if she just dug in deep, didn't ever want to think about the island again and tried to live her life. But what Esther did was to also provide a list of all of the people that she knew that were still suffering on the island. And because of Esther's bravery, 12 people are free, including a girl that she calls her sister. Biologically, she is not actually her sister, but that doesn't matter because family isn't just about biology. It's about the people that love and care for you. And so because of Esther's bravery, her sister Amelia is free. And now she and her friends are living in this beautiful aftercare facility. To explain a bit about what aftercare is, here is Leo, the director of advocacy for IJM in Ghana. So for aftercare, when the children are placed in the shelters, um, our aftercare team together with the Department of Social Welfare officers within the jurisdiction where the shelter is located, provide psychosocial services to these children. Um, we have a psychologist that attend to these children to help them with their healing process because most of these uh, children are traumatized. And so uh, they're helped with counseling and all that. Apart from that, they also provide them with education. Many of these children have never been to school before. They've never stepped into a classroom before. And so they go through an educational process where they begin to learn how to write, how to read, how to mention alphabet and all that. In addition to that, they also enjoy a time of play uh, where they get to play as children inter interact with other children in, in the same home and just live the life to their fullest and um, our team monitors them from time to time together with the department of social welfare they also go through a rigorous medical um, attention where uh, even right after the time where they are rescued and placed in the shelter and they go through medical screening to be sure that they don't have any any diseases that is left unattended to you and, and they get the best of of medical Healthcare. Uh, they, they eat uh, three square meal a day. Um, unlike when they were um, in bondage, uh, they were eating just one meal and it was even a balanced diet. But now they get to live that kind of life to its fullest, to a point where um, when the court processes are over, they get reintegrated with their families, uh, begin to go to school, and then we know that for sure the family is able to support the survivor 
uh, to continue with this or education to the point where he or she grows and just decides to choose a career path. And, and that's how the restoration process looks like. Sometimes, though, those children were originally, like, like through, and, and there's a bunch of different circumstances, but like with Esther's story, she was sent by her family, uh, kind of unbeknownst to them, to, to go and work and fish on this lake. How do you know when finally the restoration happens and the child is able to go back home, how do you know that the cycle won't just repeat and the same thing happens again? So the Alpha Care team will do an assessment of the family uh, to ascertain whether the family has the capacity to take care of the child or not. If, if the Department of Social Welfare together with our team assess the child's family and they realize that, I mean, it's, it's a risk to take the child back, reintegrate the child. The child is kept in the shelter for a long term. Uh, in other situations too, um, we try to support the survivor's family with some startup so that the family can have something doing to care for the child. In some situations too, we try to look for um, other organizations that are into uh, provision of social services or education to support such a child. So we do a rigorous assessment to ensure that the child does not stand the risk of being re-trafficked uh, before the child is reunited with the family. And, and in many occasions, when the child is being reunited with the family, we are certain that there isn't any risk and the child is reunited with the family. There is a rigorous monitoring that goes on from time to time by the Department of Social Welfare together with our own Afaket team. Uh, rigorous monitoring goes on from time to time to be sure that the child is not re-trafficked. As of the recording of this podcast in the fall of 2019, Esther is not reunified with her parents. Their relationship remains extremely complex. More on some of Esther's feelings about her family is perpetual. I think one of the first things that she said about the parents was her disappointment um, about the fact that they never bothered to check on her uh, to find out how she was doing. And I remember she shared during the very first interview I did with her, she shared with me that the father called her once. And she, when he called, um, yeah, what she told the father was, she asked the father uh, how come she could be that, he could be that wicked to her and uh, send her to this place for all this while and not bother to find out what uh, was actually happening to her. Yeah, so she, I, I think she felt let down, she felt disappointed um, that the family never Understandably so, and actually during our time with Esther's family, interviewing them, a second call happened between Esther and her dad. You gotta remember, this is only the second time she has spoken to her father in nearly a decade. And while we did actually have it recorded because everybody had microphones on them, I'm not gonna share it today because it is just way outside of the bounds of what Esther was ever thinking she was agreeing to when she said she would share her story on a podcast. But I will tell you candidly that the relationship is complex. Esther's feelings that Perpetual just shared are extremely valid. And her parents' reality, as we spoke about in episode one, is just really hard. And so Esther remains in aftercare, in this facility, growing and learning. Here is Esther. So can I ask you how you feel about living here in, um, in this place with your friends? It's good. It's good? It's good. Okay. What are your favorite things to do here? 
We play ampe and ball. So, um, what during the day? Like, what do you do during the day here other than play ball? Do you go to school? I go to school. And what do you like learning about at school? I like English. You like English? Yes. I'm so proud of you for saying that in English. That was amazing. Good job. What are you, let's talk about, what are things that you want to be learning about um, now that, that you are here? Okay, I want to go to school and become a fashion designer. A fashion designer? What, what kind of fashion do you want to design? Design can It is worth noting that later when I was hanging out with Esther, I asked her if she thought I was fashionable. Of course, I'm wearing like a black polo shirt and a pair of jeans. And she just looked at me and kindly laughed very hard. Esther indeed is very fashionable and she is working so hard. One of the things that she was too humble to say is that when she got off of the island, she began her first really ever formal education and she is excelling. This, however, is not the end of Esther's story because the factors that led to her rescue are continuing to evolve. IJM's work in Ghana continues to progress and the local Ghanaian government is rising up to be a champion in the fight to end slavery. More on the incredible work that the Ghanaian government is doing is, once again, Leo, IJM's Director of Advocacy. Government has the ultimate responsibility in protecting its citizens, and therefore every government has that kind of obligation to protect anyone that is being enslaved. And so government has the ultimate responsibility. And as, as an organization, our role is to support and build up government systems and government actors to address the problem. But ultimately, government must own the problem and government must address it. But of course, government can do it all alone. Um, and so it's important for organizations like IGM that has the expertise across the globe uh, to step in to support government efforts. How is specifically the Ghanaian government responding to, to slavery on Lake Volta? I think that it, it's important to establish the fact that um, some commendable efforts have been made by government over, over the years. I mean, in 2005, the government of Ghana uh, actually passed the Anti-Human Trafficking Act, which is a great initiative and is one of the finest. Um, in addition to that, uh, government through the Ghana Police Service established an anti-human trafficking unit, uh, which is mandated by the law. And that unit is running, it's our staff, is now trying to establish uh, various units within all the districts of the, of the country where Ghana Police Service operates. And on top of that is government's willingness to collaborate with the NGOs, of course. If, if they were not committed, they wouldn't have opened their doors to right. collaborate with us. And so that was a testament to the fact that, I mean, government is showing some effort that is worth noting. That is worth noting indeed. Um, I, 
One of the questions that I hear a lot when we're talking about the work of IJM is, if slavery is illegal, which it's illegal everywhere in the world, but if slavery is illegal, why don't the police just go in and make sweeping arrests and just end it? Like, why doesn't it just, why does it take so long to enforce a law that already exists? Yeah, so that's, that's a critical question. Slavery is legal, but in, in enforcing the laws, you also need to be sure that you're identifying those behind that. You need to unmask those behind that. And, and those behind it are people that are quite intelligent, especially if you want to talk about cross-border. But to narrow it down to the Volta Lake, this is happening at places where they are not even more trouble. Um, you can't assess some of these islands by road. The only way you can assess some of these islands is by going on the water. Apart from that, some of these communities, they look quite cut off of Ghana because um, you, they don't have the social amenities and, and all that there. The other big part is that government hasn't really contributed or allocated the needed resources, financial resources, uh, material resources in combating this problem. Uh, that has not much has not been seen on that. And it looks like it, it always has to be uh, an organization, an international organization coming in to provide those resources. And so these are some of the things that we want to see government really uh, push and, and sort of uh, invest much more resources into. Yeah. Why doesn't the government... Um invest those resources? Because it just seems so obvious. Why don't they throw all kinds of money towards this? Well, so, I mean, often I've had some government um, partners would say, well, sometimes it's an issue of competing priorities. There are a number of things that they are dealing with. Also, the other fact is that um, many people um, in government feel that the problem is a distant away thing. It's not really happening in a city, and it's sort of like has a cultural connotation to it to some extent because many people have labeled it as, as a cultural thing. And so uh, because they see it as a cultural thing, they don't see the need to really invest. They need their resources into it. And they would say that, well, the other things we need to provide school, we need to provide health facilities and all that. And so they think that there are competing needs. And so in terms of invest, investing resources, they will invest, but not to the extent where it will help address the problem completely. And so these are some of the reasons. And so each government comes into power and has its own priorities for some. And it also depends on who is who calls the show. For instance, the Minister of Gender or the Minister of Interior or like the police, police chief, I mean, what are his priorities? And so for some of them, if they don't really consider that as a priority, of course, they wouldn't invest much into it. Uh, but, but gradually we've seen that begin to see some level of change, but not to what we think will really bring the problem to an end completely. Right, because it's hard to get reelected if you don't fix the roads and yeah. take care of education. Yeah. And yeah. so that pool of money yeah. still has to be divided yeah. amongst other priorities, even yeah. if it doesn't seem as important as ending slavery. Yeah. Um, how is IJM unique in the way that it, that it that it works and with the model that it is found to end slavery? IGM is unique um, in its model uh, simply because for us, we believe that this problem can end. Two, we believe that we must support government systems to end the problem, which then establishes sustainability because we don't want to be in Ghana forever. And so we want to build government systems to help address the problem. So the government will own the problem and end the problem. The other thing is that we make sure that every survivor or every victim gets justice. And that's unique in itself. 
The other component is that when the victims are rescued, it doesn't end there. The restoration component is a major part of our work. And we believe that these survivors must be fully restored. And it doesn't have to end that they are just being fully restored, but they're able to live life to its fullest and that in the future they, they can become a model to many others. So this make our approach very unique. And we believe so much in partnership. So we believe in working in partnership with like-minded organizations, the community, church leaders, traditional leaders, and everyone that matters that makes our model very unique. At the beginning of this entire series, I said that this was going to be a podcast about Esther and about all of the things that affect her life. And so through these weeks, we have looked at what life is like on Ghana, what it's like in the fishing villages and on the lake and in the islands of Lake Volta. We've talked about the U.S. slave trade and its influence on Ghana. We have heard about Jeffrey's bravery and Esther's bravery. We've talked about the role of family and we've asked where in the world God is in the midst of all of it. We've studied Ghana's government, we've heard about its great progress, and we have comprehensively tried to understand the work of IJM, concluding today with our work in aftercare. And so the last part of this podcast is really the part that I can't narrate and I can't give you focus on, because the final segment of this podcast is about you. To continue the conversation about you is Leo. That in the life of Esther is a story of hope, it's a story of freedom. That today, Esther can now live like any child has to live. Esther can now live like the way God created her. Esther now can live a life of dignity. She can now live a life expressing the full image of God in her. Esther cannot leave and become whom God has destined her to be. I will not be surprised that someday God will use Esther to bring light to her community. That through Esther, many other lives will be saved. That God is going to use Esther to be a blessing to this country and not just this country, the world as a whole. It's a story of hope, it's a story of freedom, it's a story that must challenge all of us to act. The time is now. There's no more time to delay. God is looking to you. He wants to use you. Together with Him, it will bring the problem to an end. As we do it His way, the problem will be a thing of the past and hope will be restored. Amen. One more time, here is Perpetual. For people who are listening to this in the United States and, and in Canada and all around the world really, who are trying to understand how they could actually help in all of this, how they can help the children that are still on the island, how they can help Esther. If you were standing in front of all of them. <laughs> what would you what would you say to them for how to actually practically engage in serving these children and Esther? Okay. So um, working to bring relief to these children takes a lot of resources. Um, resources in terms of finance, um, shelter space for them, 
What would you say to the kids that are still on the island that are waiting? What is your prayer for the children that are still on the island waiting? Because they have to come through your mind. Mm -hmm. Until every child is saved. Yeah, that's always my prayer. That every child, um, one day, and that one day is not just any day, but God's own timing um, should be able to um, receive that uh, freedom um, from whatever abuse that they are suffering. Until every child is saved. The story of the children who are still on Lake Volta, who are still waiting to go home, who still miss their mom and dad, and who are still suffering severely, will be written by you. My hope is that as you consider what has been laid out in these five episodes, that you would consider going to ijm.org forward slash rescue dash children. That link is in the show notes. And you would begin to take steps to support the work of IJM. I believe very deeply in the work of IJM, and I know firsthand and have hopefully shown you in these five episodes that the work is comprehensive and it is real and it is life-saving. I would ask of you to give and give generously. Yes, sir. Okay, so I want to plead with you um, that all the other children that are still on the island, uh, you should uh, try and rescue them and bring them also here so that they have opportunity to go to school. Okay, we will do that, Esther. There you are, we. If it's okay, can you tell me what kind of things you pray for? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I pray to God to help me to become someone useful in the future so that I can also be of help to other people. Esther, do you feel like you are very brave? Yes. Yes, you do. I think you're very brave too. Thank you. Before we are done, is there anything else that you would like to say in your interview? <laughs> Amen. So all I have to say is that uh, God should bless you greatly for the good work that you are doing. And she is praying with you that your work will progress and um, more lives will be touched. Amen. Amen, Esther. Thank you. You are a good friend. And with that, 
we go back into the world. Before I go, I wanted to thank really quickly the army of people who got me and a bunch of podcasting equipment to Ghana to record a ton of interviews. Specifically, and I'm going to burn through this list because it's important to be grateful, Vera, Mike, Bree, Bethany, Corey, Seth, Jeremiah, Mindy, the Ghana field office staff who are exceptional, Leo, Perpetual, Jeffrey, all of our guests on the show, as well as the government of Ghana, and finally, Brianne, Eve, and Lucy, thank all of you for your tremendous support in telling Esther's story. On behalf of my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as Esther, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you.